Nous sommes jeunes et nous vivons pour l'instant. Hi, my name's Rhoda Dakar and you're listening to the Stateside Madness Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Stateside Madness Podcast, the one and only podcast of the official Madness American Fan Service. I'm Lori, along with my co-host Polly, here to bring you news, reviews, and deep dives into the nutty sound of the British pop band Madness. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Stateside Madness Podcast. I'm Lori. And I'm Polly. We have a special guest in our studio today, but before we get to that, what time is it, Polly? It is time for the communicator. the communicator it is a stateside madness event so stateside madness is going to be having a get-together in san francisco on may 27th at 5 p.m now we're going to be meeting at johnny foley's irish house at 243 o'farrell street now we're going to have some drinks we might be interviewing you to appear on the podcast and we'll have some giveaways i will be there myself so come meet me and other madness fans chris what time is it Showtime. So on the podcast today, folks, we have the woman herself, Rhoda Dakar. She's been uh, nice enough to grace us with her presence and allow us to ask her all sorts of questions about the illustrious career that she has had. So rather than listen to me anymore, why don't I just say, here's Rhoda Dakar. Thank you, Rhoda. Hello, it's Rhoda Dakar. <laughs> <laughs> That's yes. There we go. <laughs> no, no, because it's uh, that's just how it's said. Because it's, it, I mean, obviously it's uh, it it was it was the name that my dad decided on on the way to registering my birth. It was he also I think when he acted he was also went out as Dakar, but it wasn't his wasn't his name. Um, anyway, so yeah, Dakar. I'm Dakar, like the capital of Senegal. Ah. that's where he decided we were from this is before you could do genetic testing so we might not be from there it might be all a lie well you know back in my dad's day in fact to be honest 20 years ago you had to create your own story because there was no way of telling what your story was um anybody who whose family survived the transatlantic slave trade doesn't know what their story is so yeah it's all conjecture why don't we start at the beginning? 
Um, what was your earliest experience with music, whether it's in terms of the first album that you bought or really just whatever you remember? First experience with music, I suppose, is hearing my dad sing around the house. Um, then hearing my parents' records, which would have been 78s, and um, singing myself. Uh, because I used to, uh, I started um, singing on, uh, I started doing sort of singing and dancing. And, and so my first shows were um, with uh, pensioners, what you call seniors. So they're kind of at their, at their homes or at uh, social gatherings. And so they're the first people I ever performed to when I was a kid. So I guess that's my first um, singing in public experience. As regards buying music, um, first, thing, first thing I bought was uh, My Boy Lollipop with the help of my cousin Janice, who, whose parents lived in, in Lagos at the time. And I think she'd seen, um, she'd seen Millie Small play in Nigeria. So uh, she was kind of a fan and she, she took me to go and buy my boy Lollipop from a place called Desmond's Hip City, which is sadly no longer there, but what a fantastic name for a record shop. Any experience performing before being, uh, rather, maybe between what you just explained and, and um, before starting with Body Snatchers? Yeah, I was in youth theatre, so I used to do a lot of acting um, on the... I was in a thing called the Old Vic Youth Theatre, and the Old Vic was a um, very prestigious theatre in South London um, on Waterloo, on the corner of Waterloo Road and the, and the Cup. Um, and it's, it's where the National Theatre started, where the British National Theatre started before it moved to its own purpose-built um, setting just a bit up the road. But yeah, it was a very prestigious theatre and that's where I started. That I used to, I used to act there and at school, obviously, as well. Um, and because of that, my first job was working as a wardrobe assistant at Young Vic, which was a theatre that was aimed most specifically at young people um, and had been part of the National Theatre, I think, originally. And that was just over the road from the old bit so bizarrely yeah I because I wanted to be an actress um and until I realized that I would play nurses and prostitutes for the rest of my life I and never get to play Shakespeare on the old Vic stage like I had been doing um I just thought mm, no <laughs> I'll go to music at least I'll get a chance there so how organically did Body Snatchers come around? Um, you know, I was there because I was the last one in. I was the last yeah. one in, so I don't know. I mean, they put an ad in the music papers, in the Melody Makers specifically, which is where everyone used to put their ads. Um, but yeah, I'd, I I saw it, but I ignored it because I'd answered a few ads, and the people were idiots. So. Um, I thought, yeah, this is only going to be the same. So I didn't bother to answer it. But I had seen it. I had seen it. It started with calling all rude girls. And uh, my, uh, my reaction to that was, uh, oh, here we go. So I didn't really bother. Um, I, um, 
I met Nikki, the the bass player who started it. I met her at a gig, and um, I was gone. I'd gone to see my mate's brother's band. So that's Jules, my uh, June Miles Kingston's brothers had a band called Stay Pressed, and I'd gone to see them after work on a Saturday because not content with a, a Monday to Friday office job. I also worked in a clothes shop on Saturdays. And uh, after work, because I worked on the King's Road, it was just a little you know, short hop to Fulham, which is where they were playing Greyhound. And uh, yeah, I went to see them. And Shane McGowan introduced me to Nikki. Nikki asked me. So, you know, she said, can you introduce and introduced me, so that's how we met. And uh, yeah, so in, in the early days, then you were uh, um, running in the same circles as Shane. You would uh, the body snatchers oh. ended up supporting them, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. Our second gig was supporting the Nips. Yeah, but I think running in the same circles as Shane. I, I think Shane had his own circle of hell, particular, <laughs> his own particular <laughs> sure. circle of hell. And I didn't really run in that, no. Um, but no, I knew I knew Shane from around the the punk scene because that's where I'd, yeah, I was, you know, I'd been kind of around that. So not kind of, I had been around the punk scene uh, for a few years, and um, then I'd kind of got into the mod the mod thing. It was when um, it was it was essentially when uh, when Knox from the vibrator said to me, I can't believe you're still wearing bondage trousers. As a, He said it as a joke, but I actually thought, hmm, I can't. Maybe it's time for a change. So I, I started wearing old 60s clothes instead. I'm dying to know, was the band named after the movie Invasion of the Body Snatchers or was there another story behind yeah. the, yeah? No, it was named after, because the, there was the remake there was a remake right at that time. And uh, when we were trying to think of a name, there was this whole list of names. And the name that everyone except me really liked was Pussy Galore. And I, I just said, you can call yourselves that, but I won't be in the band. Um, so we had to, the, the second one was the Body Snatchers. I mean, I know there was a band, there is a band called Pussy Galore now, but the thing is we're talking the end of the 70s, back end of the 70s, an all-female band couldn't call themselves Pussy Galore and not be uh, mercilessly ridiculed, sadly. Yep.
And that was a little bit from the single, Let's Do Rocksteady, and its B-side, Ruder Than You. While this was going on, so you uh, were very big in the two-tone ska movement. What was it like when this movement was starting to pick up speed? And, and how did you, as a band, fall into this? Well, this our, second ever, our second ever gig, when we were supporting the Nips, um, Jerry Dammers, Pauline Black, and uh, Juliet Duvier, as, as she was then, but Juliet Wills, she, who uh, is now Billy Bragg's manager. She used to manage the selector. And they all came along to our second gig. So that's how we got into it. It was that simple. They came, they found us, not the other way around. When it was happening, did you view it as a type of movement or was it more or less just something that happens to a young person in a band? What, you're talking about Two-Tone? Yeah. I mean, well, Two-Tone was a record label. So, I mean, that's how I viewed it, as a record label. Um, there may have been a movement, but um, I was coming out of, the, I was kind of part of the, the mod thing. And so to end up in a band playing, I mean, music that I'd, that I'd grown up with, that I liked very much, um, I wasn't really part of it because I was already in a band by then. So in a way there may well have been, and, and I obviously must have witnessed at a distance this movement but I wasn't part of it because it was um, something that kind of happened out there and it probably happened in the rest of the country more so than it happened in London so uh, and I'm, I'm sort of very much a Londoner so my experience was what happened in London not really what happened in the rest of the country and I only knew that when we went out there and played so um and that didn't happen. I suppose that happened in on the second two-tone tour when we went out with Selector. So that was Easy Life by the Body Snatchers and Too Experienced, which was the B-side of the Easy Life single. So who were your early musical influences then? 
influences do you do you actually mean influences or people that i admired i mean because the the mu musical influences has got to be um something like someone like um you know i don't know liza minnelli oh. <laughs> um, or shirley bassey that's my musical influence because when i sing that's who i'm channeling i'm not channeling other people i mean, i'm channeling you know I'm channeling Shirley Bassey. I used to do, I, <laughs> as a kid at parties, I used to do, uh, we all had to do our, our party piece. And I used to, there were two things I used to do. One was Desmond Decker singing Israelite. And the other was Shirley Bassey singing Big Spender. So, you know, you can, I, I don't sound like Desmond Decker. So I think we can safely say that that wasn't my influence. But, you know, I spent, I started out singing um, old musical songs. And when I say music, I mean music hall, not musical. So music, I'm trying to remember the word. But uh, yeah, it was the thing that was kind of came from the, from the end of the uh, 19th century into the 20th century. So it's that vaudeville, I suppose you called it, didn't you? Yeah, you called it vaudeville. So that would have been my influence that sort of music um so i'd but the but the english version so i was kind of singing those songs you know the boy i love is up in the gallery the boy i love is looking down at me it's all that kind of thing so that's where i those are the kind of things i learned to sing um when i was a kid but also then there would have been uh, the records that my mum and dad had. So I, I guess that, I mean, no, I suppose not, because I didn't really sing jazz along with them. Um, but yeah, so that was my, that would have been my vocal influence. That's how I learned to sing. And then my musical influences sort of came later. Um, but the reality is those people had also been influenced by exactly the same people I had. So, you know, if, I mean, when I listen to trying to think, if you listen to say someone like Marcia Griffith, who I think has an amazing voice, she clearly learned to sing properly. She has very good diction uh, and enunciation and all of that. So, she clearly learned to sing listening to those same people because that's how she sings, you know. She sings like she could be in musical, as in one word. Um, so I suppose it's, it's all the same, really. And I was, I mean, when I was kind of in my mid-teens, I was a massive David Bowie fan. And he, you know, he clearly sounds like he um, had the sort of music hall as in vaudeville influence in the way he sings so it's all it's all kind of pretty much of a muchness I guess and I'm going a little off script here but you just mm. released a cover of a Bowie song too didn't you yeah yeah a man who sold the world yeah very unique spin on that song I really enjoyed it well, there was, I mean, back in the day, there was a reggae version, but it wasn't very, the, I mean, and, and the music was okay, but the vocal was really um, not very good at all. It was kind of like the, 
there was no real uh, effort or belief in the vocal, so I just thought, I know we, I know I can do better than that. So we did, we did a, we did another version. Fair enough. So actually, the body snatchers. Uh, you said you, you know, you responded to the ad, Melody Maker. No, um, I didn't respond. I didn't respond to the ad. Oh. No, oh, I ignored said. the ad. No, no, I ignored the ad. That's oh, that's right, right. In. Yeah. I, I misinterpreted the story. So when you did arrive um, with the Body Snatchers, were they more or less up and running, having the set list, having their routine down, and you just joined in? Or was there any room for collaboration at that point? Well, they were kind of just learning to play, I suppose, really. So, um, yeah, they'd kind of got everything together that they wanted to do. They knew what they wanted to be their first single if they got a single and things like that. So it wasn't, you know. Um, but uh, I, I was still, you know, I'd kind of just come out of youth theatre. We did, our first gig, we had one original song, which was The Boiler. And the reason it was, I suppose, the way it was is because I had been doing acting and knew how to improvise but didn't really know how to write a song so they were just playing some music and I improvised over it and improvised the story so that's how that came about but that was our first original song so there was some collaboration and of course you know everybody's familiar with you know the two singles in, in the b-sides which which feature prominently but I was really taken with Hiawatha is there anything you know, to, to mention about the, the origin of that song? Um, SJ was obsessed with uh, Native American fashion. I mean, she liked, she liked vassals, I don't know. Um, and uh, there was a thing for moccasins. Loads of people were wearing moccasins at the time. And I think that was the, so she did a, I think she came up with the tune. It was a bit like, you know, that was her take on what, um, Native American music sounded like. I don't know for one minute, suppose it's that, you know, it was, I mean, it's what, it's what Native American music had been taught to us as through film. So it wasn't, you know, there's no authenticity really. But um, yeah, I mean, that's, that's a weird old, uh, it feels like, you know, or some dreadful cultural appropriation now. And even when I re-recorded it, which is now, how many years ago? Eight years ago. It's still, I still had to change some of the lyrics because I just couldn't physically say them. I just thought, this is just, this is just too awful. But uh, yeah, I don't know, naivety.
Yeah, that was a little bit from the song we just mentioned, Hiawatha. I only would have been familiar with the version that you um, had released anyways on Sings the Body Snatchers, so it would have been an updated version at that. Yeah, well, the Bell Stars released it as their first single, oddly enough. It was the last single, it was the last tune that the Body Snatchers wrote together, and it was the first single by the Bell Stars. So they released it, so they released the... Uh, the uh, the version we don't speak of that was released by them in <laughs> 1981, I guess. Now, interestingly enough, you were signed as a band to the two-tone label and you put out two singles, but you didn't actually put out an album with them. Why is that? Because we weren't signed to make an album. Um, the Previously, the plan had been you'd, you'd do one single on two-tone and then you would get snapped up by another label and you would do your album with them. So, um, which made perfect sense, except that uh, in his infinite wisdom, Jerry decided that we should have to do two singles. So in between the first and second single, the power of two-tone started to wane. So once the second single was done, we were, we were left high and dry because all the offers had been um, around the time we signed for the first single. So people were sending us offers. I mean, it was, you know, because it was like, it was the, the new black basically. So everyone wanted to sign us. And they were saying, well, don't sign the two-tone, just sign with us and we'll develop you. And to be honest, had we done that, we probably would have been carried on working, but um, but because we signed a two-tone, we had this daft two-single deal. We and you know we were just kind of left right. Oh, okay, well the the ship sailed. Um, what do we do now? So we didn't we didn't have anything. So we kind of ended our two-tone deal with um, a single that didn't chart particularly well because the the whole everyone was, stopped, was starting to look for the next thing and um no um not infrastructure but like we had no we had no management no uh no agent nothing so essentially we had we had done about 200 gigs in about 11 months and gone from being fairly rubbish to like you know pretty good and just n had nothing at the end of it um and we were just exhausted so nothing we we didn't do an album because we didn't have an album deal well from there you moved on to a period um well working with jerry domus quite a bit but uh initially um working alongside the specials you know it's been written about rumor much you know that the cracks were starting to show in that band at that time was that a mm -hmm a harmonious or easy period for you to join or well i mean you know i don't think the specials ever been particularly harmonious they're not they're not those sort of people <laughs> it's not you know it's not a it's it's not especially harmonious they're not like that um i mean bands aren't you know by and large i mean they get a bit more harmonious as they get older but you know mostly People aren't like that, and um, no, it wasn't. It wasn't especially harmonious. But I mean, I'd been on tour 
because when we did the seaside specials tour which was the specials body snatchers and the go-go's um i'd already been on tour with the special so i knew it wasn't fun <laughs> they weren't fun <laughs> by then <laughs> yeah. no harmony good lord no you saw a woman in a cafe lips of crimson yellow grin her shoes were wrong and she looked extremely thin her jewels were faked she'd had a rinse her hair was greyish blue she looked ashamed when she explained to you it ain't easy when there's no one to lean on it ain't easy when there's nobody there it ain't easy when your lovers are all gone nobody Okay, so we just heard Pearl's Cafe, followed by I Can't Stand It, which are both by the specials featuring Rhoda Decker. Um, but I have to say, you know, within the within the arguments or whatever, there were there were like moments of deep comedy, but that's probably because I've got a terrible, I've got a really, you know, my humor is pretty dark. Um, but that was that was the thing. There were like moments of deep humor, but on tour. Tour, you know tours are like that anyway there are moments of great humor and there's always somebody in the band who's in any band who's very funny and others who are just pain in the backside so it happens it's normal so you moved along with jerry to the special aka and had mm -hmm. amongst other great songs two really important ones so one you've already mentioned the boiler mm -hmm. and free nelson mandela mm -hmm. so could you talk a little bit about what is special to you about these two songs? They don't feel particularly special. I suppose the boiler because it was the first, it was the only song, the only original song that carried all the way through the body snatchers. Um so and I and yeah, it was I guess it was an important thing to talk about date rape because it wasn't something that was particularly spoken about. out shopping last Saturday I was getting some gear and this guy offered to pay who's the hunk I think to myself for so many years I've been left on the shelf an old boiler then we went walking back down the high street and I felt really proud because he looked so neat he's a real hard man tough as they come 
He said I was cool, but I still felt like an old boiler. And that, of course, is the unmistakable song, The Boiler. Um, Free Nelson Mandela. Yeah, it was, it was all right. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know what to say about that. Yeah, I suppose the good thing is uh, I remember seeing a news report where there was, um, uh, there was a rally and it couldn't have been in South Africa because the ANC were banned in South Africa. So it must have been in Zimbabwe or a neighbouring country where the crowd was actually singing Free Nelson Mandela. So that actually made it worthwhile. But, um, you know, I don't know, I suppose my enjoyment of it all was blighted by the fact that uh, we ended up getting it, it, you know, lawyers got involved and it was a nightmare as usual. So, yeah, I, d I, I don't have great memories of anything to do with Special APA, to be honest. It was pretty much a horror story. <laughs> a horror story never to be repeated. Free Nelson Mandela by the special AKA with Rhoda Dacker. Well, we can move on to happier times then. So 2000, <laughs> 2007 rolls around and you come out with the album Cleaning Another Woman's Kitchen. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah. What, what, what made it the right time in 2007 to, to do that? Um, somebody um somebody was saying to, well i because i was working with uh nick welsh in fact now now uh the truth behind it is that pauline said to nick why don't you write a song with rhoda and so we wrote a song and then we carried on writing songs and so we had enough for an album i mean that's how that's how that came about um and uh, we got a distribution deal through um, whatever it was, I can't remember. But I mean, you know, we got a distribution, Moonskull, yeah, distribution deal. And uh, so that's, that's how that came about. But it was just, you know, it was just like, let's, I used to go to Nick's house on a Wednesday and we used to write songs in the on Wednesday afternoons. And uh, that's what we did. And, um, you know, when you have to, it's it's a good thing to do. It's good discipline to get into, like meeting up every week and knowing that you have to come up with something in that time. And you don't use all of it, but uh, you know, you if you work at a, songs can be crafted, not just they don't have to just come to you in the middle of the night. You can craft songs, and and I suppose it was a good it was a good time to do that. There's no pressure.
Let me put you straight. This is my house, not yours. Let me put you straight. You're a thief, not a cause. I'm sorry if you feel like I've dealt you a blow. But let me put you straight. This won't cure it now. heard Private World from the album Cleaning in Another Woman's Kitchen. So I suppose what we'll move on to is what's going to be of keen interest to a lot of our fans, and that's um, your association and your working relationship with Madness. Uh So of course you guys were all around at the same time starting out. Um, Did you spend any amount of time with them in their early days? Um, yeah, we gigged with them in their early days. So we, I think our first gig with them was in 1979. So yeah, we played with them early doors. Um, and um, Lee had taught Miranda how to play sax because Miranda used to go out of bedders. So we knew them from the off, really. Um, and also we used to rehearse in Camden. So we used to bump into them and whatever. But yeah, I've known them since 1979. So how did it come about? Now, this was obviously a little bit later, uh, Liberty of Norton Fullgate album, 2009. How did it come about that you recorded with them on the song On the Town, which is, by the way, an amazing, amazing duet? Thank you. Yeah, it's a great song. Uh, Mike rang me up. <laughs> yeah, he rang me up and said, oh, I've got this song, fancy singing. I'm like, yeah, yeah, all right. There you go. That's how it happened, you know. People, people, we used to bump into each other. So, like, yeah, he rang me up. So did, it was recorded like a year beforehand because we did that that show. Because I, we went in the studio and then we went to, um, um, we did a rehearsal for the show at Hackney Empire the same day. So, um, and the show I think was the day after and the day after. We watched the uh, the DVD of the Hackney show and the crowd just went nuts when you took the stage. That had to be a really cool feeling. Um, yeah, I guess. Okay, all <laughs> I right. I, well, I guess the thing is, I you know, I, the, the faces at the front I knew anyway. So um, it's not like I didn't know people because I, I don't know. It can't have been just an invited crowd. It must have been, it must have sold tickets. But I mean, I knew a lot of the people in the crowd anyway. And um, so it wasn't, uh, yeah, I wasn't walking into a room full of strangers. I was walking to a room full of, you know, there was a good, a good proportion of people I, I knew anyway. Um, but yeah, I mean, I've got a big introduction though. <laughs> if I remember rightly. It was a big introduction, so it it wasn't like they didn't know who I was. Oh, it's early in the morning. 
It's raining and the streetlights shining through my window, casting shadows on the ceiling. The room is oh so empty. I stand against the wall. The clock is ticking loudly. It's deafening in this quiet room. Oh, how long have I been waiting? course was on the town madness with our special guest Rhoda you see you say I walked on but I was already stood at the side of the stage watching the gig anyway because I just thought it was the songs were on that album absolutely brilliant it's such a brilliant album and I would I would like you know help with the props and things <laughs> I was like stood at the side I was stood in the wings like hold it, if someone needs to take a jacket off, I was like holding the jacket and things like that. So, you know, I was like, I was I was at the side of the stage watching anyway. So I was kind of taking it all in. It was amazing, it was an amazing show. You went on to record then um, uh, a cover of Tears You Can't Hide for, I think it was- Oh the, yeah, was yeah, it, yeah. Yeah, for volume your- one. Yeah. yeah, for volume one. Um, why in particular, I mean, you, you no doubt selected these songs. Uh, what was it about uh, Tears You Can't Hide that uh, made you decide you wanted to cover that one? Um, well, I mean, I, because Suggs has such a particular vocal style, you can't really, it's not really something I could cover convincingly. And that song was sung by, um, it was sung by Carl. So, um, it was, a, I could sing that because he'd sung it. Um, but definitely, I mean, and it was a great, it was a, I really, I really liked the song. Well, we did add bits to it though, because uh, I think Louis described it as, well, we finished it for you. Um, but yeah, it was, uh, yeah, we added bits to it, but it basically I did it because Carl had sung it. So it, it meant that it was accessible because you can't sing like Suggs, because he's not really, I mean, his, you know, his delivery is uh, particular, shall we say. cover of Tears You Can't Hide, the Madness song. And that appears on the Low Tech 4, Volume 1. Lori, 
Do you have anything else for Rhoda? Well, actually, can you speak a little bit? I've heard rumors that you have a new album coming out later this year. Are they true? Yeah. Well, well, they could be true uh, if everything gets where it needs to be at the right time. So it'll either be the end of this year, or beginning of next year. I don't know at this stage. I mean, the plan is for the end of this year, but you know, the way things are going, who knows? It might not. It might not come out till beginning of next year. But either way, it is. Uh, yeah, it has been delivered, and it has been mastered. I don't know if it's actually got to a pressing plant yet, and if the pressing plant is up and running. So, well, what can fans expect on the new album? Um, well, it's called Version Girl, so it's basically I've done I've done versions of other songs. So it was a lockdown project, really, that kind of took ages because it was in lockdown. It started in lockdown, and uh, because in lockdown we couldn't really meet up, you had to do. There was a there was a window suddenly where we could go in the studio and um, we did uh, we did every, uh, every day is like Sunday because that had been my experience being in lockdown every day was like Sunday you didn't know what day it was you had to kind of check the calendar to see what day um, you know if you wanted to go to the shops check the calendar see what day it is to see if they were open that day or at what time and whatever it was all a bit weird. And every day ran into each other. So that was the idea of doing that. We did that and we, we actually recorded another tune, an original tune, to go on the B side. But um, um, then we got offered a, a recording deal at kind of out of the blue to do a couple of singles. So we did that. We we just thought, well, let's just um, let's just do a, a do a dial on the B side and keep the other tune for another time. And then that kind of escalated after the first one after every day is like sunday you know was fairly well received there was then an offer to do an album so but you know we were kind of in and out of lockdown so it was all a bit it took longer than it should have done. it took a lot longer than it should have done and then you kind of then real life starts to get in in the way and so um you're just you're trying to get this thing done but um, I don't know, it just, it just took too long. I don't even know why really. There were massive delays with, it, with one thing and another. But yeah, it just took ages. But basically it's um, a collection of songs I really like, part, some from my youth, some because they, are, they were sung, um, not necessarily originally, but like for instance, every day is like Sunday, it's the Pretenders version that I was used to listen to because I really like Chrissy Hines' voice. Um, so it's kind of listening to Chrissy Hines and songs that she had sung that I really liked.
And that was a listen to two of Rhoda's recent singles, the Morrissey classic, Every Day is Like Sunday, and the David Bowie classic, The Man Who Sold the World. And then um, just other artists that I really like, you know, I really like Patsy Klein's voice. And, um, and I was a massive David Bowie fan, so that's what that was about. So, but yeah, I've, I'm, do, I'm um, doing a lot of sort of reggae scar versions of other songs. And the, the recent one, the one that's oddly enough has been the physical releases today, the 29th of April. <laughs> so the physical release day is uh, the 29th of April of Walking After Midnight, which was the Patsy Klein song. Well, Patsy Klein's version, Patsy Klein sang it, yeah. my latest one there's a lot of there's a lot of that kind of influence but there's one or two unlikely tracks on there so <laughs> people are gonna go what you, why did you do that and it's like oh because i really like it <laughs> it's that simple but yeah i mean no need to talk about those until the track listing is released well we look forward to hearing it that's going to be very cool yeah and um what is pork pie and mashup can you tell our listeners a little bit about that it's a it's a radio show. Um, a pork pies, pork pie hats are, are what the rude boys used to wear back in the day. And then there's a South London, well, South London, it's a London dish called ma- uh, pie mash. Um, so it's pork pie, pie mash, and then mash up, meaning, uh, you know, basically mixing styles together. So that's what that is. Basically, it's uh, I can play what I want. It's a radio show. I can play what I want, and uh, I um, I do interview people, not all the time, but um, but we've done this. Actually, oddly enough, um, I've done is it three? I guess it's three interviews with Bedders now. So at the beginning of the year, we kind of do a roundup. So what do you recommend? You know, and we've done our we did our third one. And the first time it was because I interviewed him actually at a gig. They just finished playing. So it was like the beginning of their 40th year. And uh, I was at that gig. In fact, it's the first gig that I bought a ticket for. I bought, <laughs> bought a ticket to see Madness for the first time, to see them on uh, on New Year's Eve in London. And um, yeah, and I was, I was, laughed at mercilessly for buying a ticket. I was like, what are you buying a ticket for? And I said, well, you know, I, I just thought that time I did, that time I stuck my hand in my pocket. And uh, so I went to this this gig, the New Year's Eve one, and it was it was great. It was great to be there with them on New Year's Eve. And, that, and so I, I did an interview with Bedders because I was doing this thing called Five Minutes With at the time. Obviously it went on for longer than five minutes. 
inevitably, because it always does. So I did Bedders, Pauline Black, uh, Roy Ellis of Simmerip. He was hilarious, the sub of things he was, to say, he was saying. And then who else did I interview? Oh, and the interrupters as well. Inter interviewed the interrupters after a gig. So it was all like classic. Uh, yeah, so so I, I did reuse some of those interviews, I think, in Port Pie Mashup. So, um, but I'd wanted to do a radio show for a long time and uh, never got the, op the opportunity. So yeah, that's yeah, the, so. that's the first Monday of every month, right? Yeah. yeah. And listeners can find it on totallywiredradio.com. Is that yeah. correct? But yeah, you find it on Totally Wired Radio or you can find it in Mixcloud, whichever whichever you can get into, because I don't know, you know, permissions are worldwide from Totally Wired. I imagine they are, but you never know. Um, but yeah, that's what I'm doing. So, you know. Well, this has been fantastic. Um, I am I am out. I have nothing left to ask. Um, unless there's anything you want to impart to American fans. I'm really pleased you're doing this because I, I love I love that band and um, I think they deserve um, much more recognition in the US. They're coming over, aren't they, this year? Well, next We're, this year? Next. No, it's been, it's, it's been cancelled a bunch of times. We're working yeah. on 2023. Um, well, I would like to say um, I'd love to come back at some point. I don't know how easy that's going to be because uh, I don't know. Uh, not really your kind of genre, but there's like a big artist here called Lil Sims um, who just had to cancel her American tour because she just can't make it work financially. It is very difficult to, I mean, touring in America is, cost, is it's a lost leader, basically. Well, thank you so much, Rhoda. This has been awesome. We really appreciate your time and our listeners are going to love this. This is going to be great. I need so, to go and see what chaos is happening in my house, but thanks very much. Well, thank uh, you. Thank you, for thank you for having me. Thanks so much. Take care, guys. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. Nice to meet you. Bye-bye. All right. Thank you again to Rhoda Dakar for coming in and chatting with us today. It was really, really cool. And thank you to all our listeners. And as is our like, uh, you know, we pick a song to end. I think we're going to listen to Live Your Life. It is from Rhoda's CD with Nick Welch, Back to the Garage. And I think it's fairly representative of, you know, our, our esteemed guests, um, sort of total vibe. So why don't we take a listen? We'll be back in two weeks with another exciting episode. So it's a goodbye from me. And that's a goodbye from me. Go get a beer, Stateside Madness. Nous sommes jeunes et nous vivons pour l'instant.
You said stay and you only make it to 